Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash wordinyourear for more details. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. You're listening to a podcast from The Word. <laughs> the first time I think I met our guest in the podcast this week is probably about 1976 or something like that. And I was working for a small record company and we needed to get a very simple radio ad done. And somebody said, go round to Island Records and ask for Steve. <laughs> he runs the studio out the back. Right. And, uh, and so I went there and did this ad, and, and that was my first time I met Steve Lillywhite. Well, hi there, David. So, uh, yeah. And, yeah, I like to say that I was produced by Steve Lillywhite very early on in my career, but it did not quite as successfully as you two <laughs> and, I don't know, Big Country and the Rolling Stones and God knows yeah. all sorts of people. So... It's nice to to, yeah, nice to to meet up again. Nice to meet up again. I have to say that I don't really remember that. No, time. Okay. But I don't think it would have been 1976 because I I started work at Philips Studios in 1972, and then I didn't move to Ireland until 77, and uh, right, that was okay. during uh, my. And the reason I I worked at Island Records was that when I was at my first studio, I did some demos with a band called Ultravox, uh, who were called Tiger Lily at the time, mm. who were sort of a. a Everyone says, oh, yeah, mid-Ewer. But yeah, I said, no, group. it was different a different group. group. Dennis, Dennis Lee. Dennis Lee, who <laughs> then became John, John Fox. And um... Just just in that. Uh, oh, right, uh, we're OK. Yeah, we're fine. Yeah, carry on. Uh, Dennis Lee became John Fox, and, and they changed their name from Tiger Lily to Ultravox. And, and it was... Uh, and actually, that was the first time I met Brian Eno. Because it was... that Basically, the band, uh, band said, we want Steve to work on our album... And Island Records said, who's Steve Lillywhite, quite rightly, because I was 23 years old at uh, 22 years old working at a studio. And um, they said, well, you know, can we can you get Brian Eno? So I anyone who's worked with Brian knows that he is a fantastic guy, a fantastic producer, but he will just come in and do his thing. Then he'll leave while while we do a lot of the the meat and potatoes, you know, Um, but but that was when I first met Brian, and he was fantastic, and we got on well. Next time I saw him was on the Joshua Tree, which was, which was quite a slightly step more up. successful. Yeah, slightly more successful. But Ultravox was a good um, was a good starting point for me, and it was you know it was sort of punky, roxy music, 
or arty punk, you know, and I always preferred my punk rock to have an art bent. Right. Because I, I was never a fan of the sort of uh, UK subs and, and those sort of punk bands. You know, I, I like melody always, and, yeah. and I like the art side. And um, But my first, how I got my first break was my roommate, I was living in West Ken, uh, near the Nashville rooms, and we... Um, and and my 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 roommate was a he's since passed but he's uh he he did art work for Island Records for Eddie and the Hot Rods and stuff and I I just uh, I just engineered do anything you want to do and sort of co-produced that song. Of course, everybody forgets Eddie and the Hot Rods for about three months were the biggest. They thing were in almost the biggest band in Britain. Yeah, they were. Yeah, but they had a manager called Ed Hollis yeah. who um was not named after the band but he was the manager the producer. And the lyric writer. Uh-huh. So, you know, but the band still couldn't quite understand why he was always making more money than them. Oh, uh, really? And it was, yeah. And, um, but yeah, he was a good man. But, but, but Johnny Thunders happened, who was uh, in a band called the New York Dolls. He came round, he was friends with my roommate. And he, and for some reason, word on the street was that, that the, this band, the Heartbreakers, he was in, that their album was not well produced. L.A.M.F. it was called. Yes, and um, with some great songs like Chinese Rocks and, you yes. know, some all yeah. questionable... I mean, I won't talk about Content, lyrical. yes. Content, <laughs> but... Um, not wholesome. Not wholesome. <laughs> Never wholesome. Never accused of being wholesome. No, so, uh, so I said to Johnny in my world, I'll, I'll do the Heartbreakers or whatever you want, you know. And, uh, and there was this wonderful guy called B.P. Fallon who was... Um, <laughs> who was Johnny's manager, and, and he said, well, look, let's do a solo album. Let's get these wonderful people who were on the scene. So that was the first time I met Chrissy Hine, who happens to be... So this is Johnny Thunder's solo record. Called So Alone. Which was on Real Records. Real Records. Which is, why, which is Chrissy yeah. Hine's label. Chrissy Hine's label, right. So that's how I got to know Chrissy Hine. Um, and, of course, uh, so, so we had the Sex Pistols, Steve Marriott, Phil Lynott, Peter Perrett from The Only Ones... Um, there was talk of Jimmy Page coming down one night, but he just never showed. Right. But um, it was great, and I, I sort of put this album together that had a few good tunes. Um, this song called You Can't Put Your Arms Around a Memory that is as good a title as any... It is. Probably any song. I've got that record still at home. I yeah. Guess, it's, 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 and I held on to it mainly for the title, really. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's a charismatic title. It's a great it? title for a yeah, song. Yeah. And, and it has actually been covered by, by, by a few people as well. Uh, so, yeah, anyway, I'm doing Johnny Thunder's album, and, and who, I'm talking about all these people, and they, they're all dead, and this is a sad thing, but the... The manager of Susie and the Banshees came down the studio to hang out. Neil Stevenson. Neil Stevenson, who um, listened to it and said, oh, I like that drum sound. Uh, Would you like to do our first single? We've recorded a version of it. We don't like it. So we need to re-record it. I said, and I, I knew enough to know that as long as I made a decent version of this song, it would be a hit. Because at that time, Susie and the Banshees were up there, you know, with the Clash, Sex Pistols. But not signed. Have they been? There'd been a real campaign to get them a sign. Right, but they, no, at this point, I think they were signed to okay. Polydor. Yeah, right. They were signed to Polydor. By Chris Parry. By Chris Parry, yep, that's right. And, um, we, God, we're old. And, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, I can't so, remember what we did yesterday, but no, uh, Chris Parry signed Susie and the Benches. Yes, and uh, Real Records, yeah. yeah. And so, so I went in and cut um, 
Hong Kong Garden, and all of a sudden it was, you know, I knew it would be a hit because there was enough, there was like a wave of, you know, bands who were in the music press at the yeah, time yeah, would yeah. get a hit record. Yeah. And, uh, and I have to say, it was a damn good record. And, uh, and this was even in the days before the single was, you know, the band said it's really uncool to have the single on the album. So I then went and did their first album called The Scream right. that did not have Hong Kong Garden on it. Which, in retrospect, a mistake? Uh, it, well, some, someone thought that because they laced it on on later Put editions. It on later. But um, it was... I mean, Hong Kong Garden was quite a uh, shiny pop record. And the rest of the album, there were no more singles on it. You know, Suburban Relapse and, and uh, you know, all these, yeah. these really... But it was a great album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so then I was in. You know, I had... So suddenly you had two hits or three. Or two. Yeah, well, it was. A, it's like do anything a, it's, you want to do being a hit. And my name wasn't really producer on that. I right, mean, I yeah. did a lot, right. you know. But um, but it was like it's like a catch twenty two. When you when you have a hit, you get the work. But how do you get the work unless you have a hit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And all of a sudden, I snuck in through the back door on this wave called punk rock. And as I say, punk rock as as punk was a great attitude, and I still stand by the attitude. But as a musical art form, it was limited. So, you know, when I was offered XTC and the Psychedelic Furs... So is that what came out to us? Yeah, yeah. They, they, these, for me, excited me more than working with, you know, the UK subs or the Lurkers. Even right. though I actually did a song with the Lurkers. <laughs> <laughs> How did you find those kind of groups in the studio, the punk groups in the studio? I mean, well, they... the members... Um, oh, yes, of course. My brother was in Your the members. Your brother was in the members. And uh, so I did the... Sound of the Suburbs. Sound of the Suburbs and the Not Quite so, but still... Offshore banking, banking business. Which, let's face Good it, record. is 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 pretty um, relevant for the times I at the moment. I suppose so, yes, yes, yes. yes. And, and Mr. Nicky Tesco is was writing for Music Week. He, oh, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, I think yeah, he's, he's, he's around he's doing still, that yeah, kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. Yeah, so you're doing a wide range of stuff. Yes, I, I've always used my success to not work with a similar band to the band I got the success with. Because I thought, I've, I've had a hit, I'm, I'm on people's radar, so I'm not going to go and do another band that sounds like my hit band. I'm, I'll use the success to try... To, to spread it, so I did Joan Armour Trading. And uh, very early on, I, I did Walk Under Ladders. Oh, cool. Um, yes, but that, yes, yes. see, that was... See, this is the thing. You remember the things, but do you remember them in the order? <laughs> uh, that came after a big hit, a breakthrough record, wasn't it? Was it Glyn Johns produced that breakthrough? Yeah, record? well, uh, she had... Uh, oh, God. Love, uh, love, love and Affection. Love and Affection. Affection. Still one of the great yeah, songs. Yeah, yeah. And Willow, a great song yeah. from that album as well down to zero yeah 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 and i did uh my album was really good this was after i worked with peter gabriel let's right. talk about that oh, because okay. there was a time you know so i was doing all these uh you know having a few hits and um and i got this call from this woman gail colson who uh was peter's manager at the time and said steve you know we'd like you to meet with peter gabriel now i thought this was a friend of mine calling up to take make a joke because up until that point Everyone I'd worked with was my... Had started when I started. Yeah, yeah. You know, we all were sort of rebelling against what came before. Uh, or pretending to. Or <laughs> pretending to, but, you know, actually, <laughs> that's the thing, yes. Um, but Peter Gabriel was uh, definitely from the era before. Even though the age difference wasn't much. He's... 
At that age, at that time, it seemed a lot. Yeah, how old is he now? I don't know. Well, what is, what is, what is, what is he's going to be or something like that. Right, he's five, six years older yeah, than me. Okay, and um, yeah, but so we 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 went in, and he had this idea to make a record without symbols. And that uh, was his idea. No, his that was his big idea for the record because he didn't want it to sound like normal drums. And um, <laughs> do people know. do people normally have those kind of self denying ordinances when they go to make records? Do you get oh because uh, Peter Gabriel's doing this thing at the moment, isn't he? Where he's doing he doesn't have percussion on records at all. Right, it? his current orchestral record. So boring. <laughs> <laughs> well, you might say that I couldn't possibly comment. I couldn't possibly comment. But yes. but anyway, he, he he's always had that idea. Yeah. Really, that well, I, I think any artist, and I'll I'll cite Bono as probably the best example of this, is when you get the big picture idea right. And I've always said this, I'm just changing the subject completely, but with you too, uh, when they get the big picture idea, like the Joshua Tree, it feels like the desert. Actung Baby feels like Eastern Europe. Now, the fact that it wasn't really recorded all at Hansler Studios, like, you know, I mean, it was... Because I, I know, because I was in Dublin when we were doing it, but yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. You know, it's all an illusion... But the feel of Acton Baby was Eastern Europe and that. The feel of all that you can't leave behind was somehow returning, a sort of home, you know, coming back to yeah, your yeah, roots. Yeah, yeah. The feel of No Line in the Horizon was 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 uh, Morocco. And I don't think they quite got it right. But I won't say any more about that. Right, right. I did get <laughs> I got told. So what are you saying? Starting up, they start off with big ideas of how yeah. they want it to be. Yeah, yeah. Well, There's we, almost a visual image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I think um, great art is can be great with those sort of limitations. I think limitations are great for art. Right. You know, um, you know, because one might say that, you know, you could... Musicianship can cover up a lot of uh, inadequacies in songwriting because you'd make it sound like fancy instead of trying to make it work... How can I say this in the in the diplomatic way? <laughs> you don't have to be diplomatic at all. No, 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 no. My, one of my best friends in the world, Adam Clayton, you know, is a, a fantastic boom, boom, boom bass player. And they have to really make, you know, he doesn't, he did slap a little bit once on the, on, on the October album, I think. But, um, but really, you know, you have to really make a great record with, with the sort of limitations of what the band have. Right, right. And uh, I also work with a band called Fish, who actually, in a big American jam band, probably the best musicians I've ever worked with. And in a way, their problem is just as bad because they can, they can do much. anything. You know, it's like, what should we play? Well, I, I remember reading a quote years ago from Martin Russian, who died oh, not yes, long ago, yes. who said he'd worked with Emerson, Keith Emerson, and he'd worked with right. Phil Oakey, and he thought Phil Oakey was a better musician, yeah, because he could decide, right, out of quite a limited palette, what he wanted to do. Oh, absolutely. Whereas if you can play anything, yeah, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Is you do play anything. No, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So how was Peter Gabriel to work? So with Peter him? was fantastic. He's uh, we. Even though the album is as dark as fuck and, and really doomy, the, the, the making of it was full of joy. Lots of table tennis and... Where were you doing this? We, we, we did it, well, that album actually uh, probably paid for real world, but, but at the time there was no real world. There was just Peter had a barn. It was down in the West Country. Down in, in Bath still. You oh, know, okay. he lived in Bath. He had a barn. Uh, and we got a, um, the, the Manor Mobile, I think it was, oh, and we went and parked it in, uh, in the field. And we just, you know, made music there with, for. Uh, but this was the, this was the first time, 
I'd worked on something that was a long project. Because Peter, even in those days, was not the most prolific of lyric writers. So he would take, like, two weeks off. You know, so we'd all go back to London and, uh, and I'd zip off and do a Psychedelic Furs album. In between? In between. So you could bash out a Psychedelic Furs album? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. I was reminded a couple of years ago that we did the first Psychedelic Furs album in 11 days or something. Really? Which is why I've got such a, a, a pretty extensive discography, because in those days, you know, you, you, you could do records quickly. Why could you do them quickly then? Well, I, a lot of it is the lack of choice that you had. You know, there weren't so many choices. So you actually, technologically, technologically speaking, right. um, there weren't many choices, and then it was a more innocent time, I think. So you got a good drum sound, and yeah, we got a and good you performed it in the studio. Yeah, and I, I loved, you know, uh, you know, people say to me, "Oh, you know, what about arrangements? Do you do much of that?" And it's like, I don't. I'd rather do as little as possible, right? Because I love working with great musicians yeah. and steering great musicians. You know, I'm, I have no ego, and I don't want to say. I'll make you a star kid. No. Right. I want you to be really good and right, carry right, me right. with your career. So you, well, you did XTC? Did you XTC? I did uh, Drums and Wires, Making Plans for Nigel. Right. Uh, Black Sea. With Black Ta- Sea's a great record. Yeah, with Towers of London, Respectable Streets yeah, yeah. and stuff like that. And uh, and that was when I got... And, and then I did this, fan, this very strange documentary because I, I've... My timing is like, I can't remember the, the chronology, exact yeah. chronology, but, but there was a clue because I did a, um, there was a TV show, which was as much an infomercial for Richard Branson and Virgin <laughs> as it was really the making of Towers of London. I it was made by BBC Bristol and it was a weekend at the manor um, recording Towers of London. Now, m- a lot of this hour-long thing, which I've just recently found. A friend of mine bought a bootleg copy in Japan and he burnt me a copy and it's me just sounding like this. Yes. It's like, and the fifth member of the band is Steve Lillywhite. <laughs> and I sound a bit more plummy than, than I do now, actually. My accent's changed. What were they like to work with? XCC were fantastic. I mean, Andy Partridge, genius. I mean, no question, one of the, one of the top... You know, in boxing, they say pound for pound, the best fight. I mean, him, pound for pound, one of the best creative people I've ever worked with. And and it's... But they were pretty combustible. Not in those days. There were no drugs. There was no... You know, the things that combust a band, women and drugs, there was none of. Right. uh, Or or excessive religious views. Or anything that, um, that, that you would say... There was nothing. They they were like country bumpkins. They would have a pint down the down the local. Uh, right. Down. So when bands start out, you're saying that they're they're just concentrating on the dynamic of the three or four of them or whatever. Yeah. It's only when they get the trappings later on or the distractions. Well, it, it depends which band. I mean, because not, most bands tend to start out carefree and having a laugh, and then when success comes, they get sort of paranoid and yes. stuff like that the one ex- absolute exception is you two who started out paranoid and not talking to anyone and very dour and you know event success really suited them they turned they 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 maybe because they grew up in public but you know bono became his dad joking and laughing and having a laugh you know and they're all great uh, right. really 
good like that. You know, none of that ivory tower stuff. Yeah. You know. So uh, when you were first uh, asked to produce them, you didn't think they were a very promising prospect, did you? Well, th- this is what happened with you two, if you remember. There was a bit of a buzz about this band in Ireland. So A&R men, in their pack mentality, all went over for the gig. And it was... I wasn't there. It was apparently the worst gig. Uh, <laughs> because they, they, they got the music papers on their side. It was a really bad gig. So the pack mentality that went there suddenly became the pack mentality that went... Away. We're not interested in this band. So six months went by and they managed to just about squeeze a deal with with Blackwell uh, Island. Really? Oh, yeah, because there was no great enthusiasm. No, 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 no. Who who did they have? Island Records had, you know, they they were the label of Bob Marley, Steve Winwood and maybe the Buggles, (laughs) you know. And um, so you two were, you know, they, they, they hadn't ridden that punk wave. I mean, they, they'd had Eddie and the Hot Rods. Um, well, Ultravox. Well. And Ultravox, but not Sellers. The Jags. The Jags, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the, the island didn't go into it thinking, this is the future. Absolutely not, because, uh, I mean, you know, and this is where Paul McGuinness is, is a masterstroke, because the manager, he, you know, he, he, think, he thought globally right at that beginning. But, you know, in those days, if you'd looked at U2's contemporaries, Teardrop Explodes, Echo and the Bunny Men. This is like the, 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 the second wave, really, of, you know, like punk had done its thing, and now we're on the next, yeah. you know, ni- we're into 1980, yeah. like a couple of years later. And, you know, if you put Teardrop um, up uh, and Echo and the Bunny Men, and you, t- you two were like, you know... Just another. Just another. It's, it's like the, the, the two-tone bands. Oh, my money was always on the selector. I would have lost that. <laughs> <laughs> you would have bet wrong. Yes, I would have bet wrong. So, so I didn't sign them. So, somebody approached you about about producing them. Yeah. Well, no. This is what happened. Um, Martin Hannett, of course, another dead one. Yes, Joy, uh, Joy Division and, and Factory staff producer, yeah, yeah. really, and, and King of the Marshall Time Modulator. Oh, okay. Which was a great studio piece of equipment, which gave all those Joy Division sort of tunnelly sounding things. You know, and he was great at that. I always used to go into a studio and after him and just plug something through without changing the buttons. Whatever it was. Because, you know, you never know. secret. <laughs> yeah, but he always changed it. <laughs> um, but anyway, he was paranoid. But he did U2's first single, which was called 11 O'Clock TikTok. And the band were happy with it. They wanted him to do the album. And then, and this is where I've always said, but my chronolo- my, my t- I'm not sure if this is actually true, but... But I always seem to remember at the time it was when Ian Curtis committed suicide and this freaked out um, Martin Hannett and he was not in the right frame of mind to produce U2 at the time that they needed to make their album. So, although I'm not sure if this is exactly right. But anyway, something happened and um, U2 went back to their list of producers and I was number two. So, thank you, Ian. Um, So, (laughs) I... I got, uh, I got the, I got the job. I went over and recorded a single, and they liked it, and we went and did Boy. And at this point, I was still, uh, I was still under this thing that I should only ever do one album with a band because I can work with lots of different bands, but bands should work with lots of different producers. So you know, for the second album, I said, you know great you know it's done okay in america they've got a foothold 
Uh, they certainly toured like crazy because McGuinness got them to tour like crazy. Uh, and they said, no, we'd love you to do the second one. And I went, OK. And, and then we did October, which was a lot darker yeah, yeah. and a lot, you know, it's that old thing. You know, you've got how many years to write your first album and they had no time to write the second one. So they were playing catch up. So when it came to the third album, I said, of course you should write, you know, you should work with someone else. And they said, yeah. So they went away and they, and they worked with um, a guy called Sandy Perlman. They did some recording. Oh, Blue Oyster Cult. Blue Sandy Oyster Cult, exactly. And that was not um, very successful. And, and basically they phoned me up and said, Steve, what are you doing in September? And, uh, but it, a very interesting fact was that after October... The record company, not Blackwell, who was the owner, but the, the, the president of Ireland Records, wanted to drop them. And, and Blackwell just had this little... He just had this thing that they had a spirit. Because Blackwell's always said to me, you know, he feels guilty about, about his... How much, you know, what he's done from U2. Because it was... Um, you know, he says he didn't do anything. No. Unlike Marley, where he, he really he, worked, he though. really worked Bob Marley. Yeah, he produced yeah. the records. Yeah. He, he he he, you know, he took him yeah. from just a you know yeah. a great Jamaican songwriter, but made those records timeless. There's no question about it. Very very great. Producer. Whereas you two became part of the island myth, didn't they? Yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> and it need never have happened. No no no. This this guy wanted to drop them, and Blackwell just said, oh, give him a one more try. Right. You know, there's something about this band. So we went in and, um, as I say, we, we, we cut New Year's Day and Sunday Bloody Sunday. And, and, I, and I remember Bono in the studio <laughs> saying to Edge, in the, only, in the way only like family members can say to each other, you know, it's like, don't fucking do that. You know, don't play like the Edge, play like Mick Jones from The Clash, you know, because Edge is very much the, the scientist or just right. fiddle, you know, and uh, Bono was wanting him to be more direct and uh, so did, did you detect from your early working with them that they had they had clearly had something special that they had kind of staying power and that and yeah i mean bono was always a great singer you know for me it's it's always about the, the singer more than the song really really yeah because i don't know about you but i can hear a song five times and not get it and then I can hear it a sixth time and go, oh, I love that song. Who is that? Right. Oh, right. I've heard that. Yeah, I didn't. I, but with a voice, I can absolutely, I, I never change my opinion about a voice. Right. You know, I'll either like a voice and I always like it or I'll dislike a voice and always dislike right. it. You know, so I, I, you know, so when I'm listening to demos, that's the sort of thing I listen for. So it's his voice that struck His voice, yeah, yeah. He, great voice. I mean, the musicianship was good. And Edge, of course, you know, I mean, I, I'd been a fan of Marquee Moon by television, so I was thinking, well, he's just copying, you know, right. a lot of Tom Verlaine's yes, lyrics. Yes, yes, <laughs> but, um, but, you know, I mean, apparently, and this is a quote from Edge, and I don't remember it, but apparently I said to Edge, well, do you have any other guitars? <laughs> you know, he goes, no. <laughs> so we did the whole first album with a flying V, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't have any other guitars. And Larry's dad used to come and collect him from the studio and, you know. But they, they had a kind of maturity about them, didn't they? Or were kind of well, they were unflappable. And... They were so... It was very... You see, people nowadays don't realise this, but in those days, if you're from Dublin, it's like now being from Ethiopia. In terms, the world has got so much smaller now. But in those days, 
you know, there was like one or two record stores in Dublin and they would buy a record a week and they would all sit there. You know, it's like in Keith's book. You know, it was, you know, Keith and Mick would, 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 would sit and, you know, listen to these records like, like prospecting for gold. Yeah, yeah. And they, you know, and, uh, and you too were like that because there was no, you know, radio in Ireland. They didn't have the wonderful liberal Radio 1 and, and all that stuff that we had. So, so, again, it's a case of having less is a good thing. Yeah, having less is a good thing. Limitation is great for art. Right, right. Arguably, I don't know. And so they, um, and, you know, they, so they grew up, they musically grew up in public. You know, right. I mean, the, uh, the first time they really listened to the blues was on Rattle and Hum. And they thought, we have to do the blues. That's part of musical history. So what, listening to B.B. King and so forth, yeah. it was kind of first time. Pretty much. I mean, I know Adam didn't know how to play a 12-bar blues for years. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he'd come out of a different tradition. Yeah, yeah, of course. Right. <laughs> you know, and, you know, I, I, at, at the age of 14, I was playing the bass and, and playing blues songs. So I knew, you know, Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee and all oh, these. Right. I used to go to Melody Maker Blues at the Royal Albert Hall. I was, you know, uh, they put on these blue. I was a melody maker, man. Right, day. right. So they were they were from a very different world. Different world, and right. um, they yes. And they also shared everything, didn't they? I mean, the, this business about sharing songwriting credit and so forth. Do I don't know. I think has that had an effect? Do you think? Well, they share the things that, 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 that they, you know, when you, if you share everything and some no, they share the music. You know, uh, but the music is only a third, I think. So they 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 share a third four ways. The, 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 I, I don't know much about this, right. but publishing is, I think, three things. I've never written a song in my life. There's right. the music, there's the lyrics, and there's the melody. So oh, I see. the music is split four ways. Okay. The melody, whoever writes the melody, gets that. And the, and the lyrics, whoever writes the lyrics, gets that. So you've never written a song? You've never, in all this time... No, why be in an studio with songwriter? But, the, but producers, I'm a bass player. Producers have credits on songs all I know, over the place. I've never, I've never been... You've never said, oh, I, I came I'm up with not... the idea for that little bit. How no, about cutting no. me in for 10%? Oh, God, no. <laughs> no, I, no, because it's really stupid, but I thought, well, you know, I, I'll make my money from the sales right, of right. the records, little knowing that people would just... To stop. Stop buying and steal <laughs> well, them. And eventually, <laughs> eventually, we come to that. Yeah. So, yeah, so you two made you famous, didn't it, as a producer? I Is think that... so, but I was... No, I was the well-known guy before you... You know, I'd had the, the, uh, the Peter Gabriel. I'd had the... You know, I'd had a handful of hits by this point. Right. Um, had you done Simple Minds by then? No, no, Simple Minds, this was my sort of... By the time uh, War came around, uh, I'd done War, and then I did Sparkle in the Rain and Big Country all around the same time. Right. I think then now we're into 1983. Right. And uh, that was when I met Kirsty, end of 83. Right. This is Kirsty McCall? Kirsty McCall, my, my, my first wife. Right. And... Um, and yeah, that's when we bought this recording studio that we're sitting in. Yes, now. we're still sitting in the in the house in in Ealing, where uh, <laughs> where I, I I would what we would do. I we'd go to a very posh studio with all the musicians and just play, and Kirsty would do a scratch vocal, and then I'd come up here, and so that would cost a lot of money because good studio, lots of musicians and stuff. Then I'd come up here and and like cut the clock time by, you know, 
by 95%. Yes, yes. Uh, because we were working at home. But we had two small children who would come in. And, you know, if you work in your own studio, you, you know, there's no... it's not, no limitation. No limitation. So I would just sit up here and edit between takes. I was, you know, as you can see, there's 24 tracks. The, the huge grate. The huge oh, grate. was that? Sony tape machine. Yeah, 24 track. And um, to be honest... It's now a museum piece, isn't it? It's a museum piece, and it's also being used as a storage space. But is this up here where where she was doing vocals? Yeah, she all the vocals. Well, on on pretty much all the records she did, till she died, uh, my involvement was on... uh, Electric Landlady? Landlady. No, what was the one before? Kite. Kite, which was named by Dave Gilmore. Oh, really? Who How came come? and played... Dave Gilmore played oh, yes, his guitar play on Kite. And, we, and you know, we said, you know, what, we need to sort of pay you. And he actually said this word. He said, send a kite... Ah, oh, don't worry. Just send a kite to Armenia. Meaning, I don't know what that meant. Is a kite a specific amount of money? Meaning, like, I want you to give my... He never explained what it meant. <laughs> it's a denomination of currency in Armenia. Right. Or is it a, like a, a Cockney denomination? Oh, right, a yeah. Kite. You know, yeah. We don't have a kite, a mate. Sky, you know. A rocket. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. But Kirsty liked the, 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 the term kite. And it at, became called that. And it became kite. And um, then Electric Landlady. Then I sort of helped out on Titanic Days. But uh, that was when our... Maybe that was named after our marriage. <laughs> but then that was the end of that marriage. And, um, yeah, and we all know the, historically. But, you know, she's uh, she was a fantastic artist, as, as you well know. And then um, for me, I, I was still wanting to sort of spread my sonic landscape. And so, you know, Frank Murray, this guy who managed the Pogues, oh, yes. um, approached me. Uh, pretty much a, when I came back and worked with the Joshua Tree, I think, and said, Steve, you know, I've got this band. Elvis Costello produced their last album. Um, you know, we'd love a proper producer. So did you produce Fairy Tale of New York? Yes, right. I did. And I did Kirsten's vocal in this very room. Oh, really? But not Shane McGowan's. Right. They never sung it together. Really? Yes. And you don't feel that like that kind of thing misses something. And that, that's uh, the popular view, is that if they're not in the room together, it's... It's not the same. Do you? No, you that no. You don't make movies in real time. Right. You know, gigs are theatre, records are movies. Right. Possibly. Okay. You know that you. Personally, my 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 personal taste is that it doesn't. I always say it doesn't matter how long a record takes to make, as long as it doesn't sound like it took that right. long. Yes. You know, and so as much as I can appreciate Def Leppard. I don't really ever listen to it. Right. You know, I mean, because it's just all craft and no art. Right, right. You know, and it's brilliant craft. And maybe maybe the craft is art. I'm Who am I to say? Right. But it just, you know, I much prefer some sort of chaotic meeting of atoms that makes something that you're not quite sure of, but it works. So producers come in all shapes and sizes. They do. Um, you know, very technical ones, engineering type producers. Yeah, big fat ones like Rick Rubin. <laughs> Brian Eno, who you know Fault. goes in and has great yeah. thoughts that yeah, nobody yeah, can yeah. quite understand, and then get no, 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 not at all. <laughs> Brian Eno no, is not is not the boffin you. you right, I mean, he is as down. I mean, he's a. It's funny. Me and him get on so well, and I'm, you know, I'm just like a guy who talks about tits, you know, and Brian. <laughs> This isn't going into print. No one's going to listen to this. <laughs> You'd be surprised. Go on. Oh, 
no, because, okay. Um, anyway, no, they, they do come in all shapes and sizes, and it isn't really... It's, it, in a way, it's like, it's a bit like, you know, when you say... It always annoys me when people say, do you like jazz? Well, jazz can be anything from, you know, New Orleans, yeah, yeah. traditional, lovely stuff, to the most unlistenable, avant-garde-clue-type mm. rubbish... To Pat Metheny, I mean, you know, it can yeah, be anything. Sort of anything can be jazz. So, also a producer, what does he do? I always. So, what do you do? What was your? My, what do you think your I tailor my. I, is my great skill is that I'm a good bloke. I think I'm. I I have a certain amount of little golden nuggets of of things that I've learned over the years. I, I I'm certainly a jack of all trades. You know, I know a bit of music. I know a bit about the desk. I. But I can, I steer. I always say, the band builds the ship. My job is to steer it safely to port. Now, and to help decorate it. Right. Um, now, you know, the Titanic was a great ship, but there was not a good captain. <laughs> right. You know, so, so it's an important job. So and you've got to see the rocks ahead, the icebergs ahead. Well, that's also a thing, is that I can see a problem before the problem appears. Yes. And I can steer around it. Right. So but at the end of the day, it's, it's, oh yeah, God! With the Stones, when I worked with them, I was Henry Kissinger. So go and tell which Stones record did you? Uh, do? The one I did was called Dirty Work. Right. It of had a song called Harlem which, Shuffle. Now I like Dirty Work. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I may be in a minority here. I've forgotten that you have done. I that did one. Dirty Work. There's had one hit, one hit to, to the, the body. body. I, I, I quite I rather like. Which was not a bad song, you know. Uh, it was one which of which was a single, wasn't it? Which was a single, and Harlem Shuffle got to number yes. four. Yeah, yeah. So, of course, that was when the relations between Mick and Keith... Oh, was... Keith, Keith and me was, well, Mick had just done that <laughs> fucking disco album, <laughs> which was affectionately known in the studio. And, of course, Keith, who is the most um, uh, loyal person in the world, you know, in terms of both, throughout his whole life, he's just like a, he's a loyal person. For him, Mick doing a solo album was like him cheating. Right. You know, it was uh, it was not that. Then, of course, Keith. Then Keith did. Well, you know, himself. because if your wife cheats, then you're allowed to cheat. <laughs> but he, you know, Mick right. was only cheated first. Right. You know, and and Keith then thought it was okay for him to get his own back. So did you did you have them in the room together when you were making that record? Uh, they probably for an separate... hour over six months. Really? Oh, it was it was really yeah, really really really. It was not a... Um... So what, so rhythm section first kind of thing? No, they were all jamming, but, but they... <sighs> but... Well, there were two parts of the record. There was the first part in Paris, which was just the, um, the jamming, which was, you know, so many reels of tape, and uh, it's... I mean, to be honest, I learnt more about a great band than they learnt from me on that record. And... Um, was like, imagine a whole series of cogs that where one of them's not working, nothing works. Right. And all of a sudden, something clicks, and this whole thing works. And that was like the stones. I mean, but it would only work, like, 2% of the time. Yes. Now, 
earlier, it may have worked a lot more. But when it did work, there was like that little thing. Oh, my God, this was... That's it. That's it, you know. So they'd start off just jamming. Yes. And, and when you got the tape Blues, running. Though. Yeah, we'd get the tape and just running. just hoping that somebody comes up with something that could be turned yeah. into a song. But they would always perform. Mick Jagger was, you know, he came from that world where, you know, you perform in the studio. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was good fun. Nothing started till at least one in the morning. Right. I mean, my, our days were pretty much like... 12 hours difference yeah, yeah, yeah. you know we'd work from but we'd only work from one in the morning till six six or seven then we'd go back to the hotel sleep all day get up have dinner and go to work so somebody would have a fragment of a song which you yeah. built into a song and yeah. then somebody comes along with some and Shuffle of course is a, is a cover version so yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah and the, and the solo of One Hit to the Body was played by Jimmy Page right who happened to just come to the studio I mean we would often get lots of it was very uncool to, to have the door closed. That's one thing it? I learned with the Stones. Really? The door is always open, darling. Come in. And, oh, yes. And, and there was never any... Um, uh, 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 what's the word? Uh, where you... Analyze. There was no analysis, ever. I'd been, they, I'd they been didn't used talk to, about it. To talk. No. Very uncool to discuss the, the music. I've read loads of accounts on Stones in the studio and always got the impression they don't talk about it at all. No, no, it's like, musical do, let's play another game of dice. Whoa, let's do, <laughs> have another drink, dear boy. Yes, and Ronnie Wood will tell a story and everyone will laugh and, OK, let's go and play some music. And play some music and come back in. And, and of course, I, you know, um, there was a song called Silver and Gold that Bono did. Yes. That was a charity record. Anyway... We wanted... Bono came up to the studio and uh, this was while I was doing The Stones because I, you know, and and he walked in and I think we got the band to overdub on this song. And and Ronnie Wood, I remember, was playing slide guitar with a knife, you know, because that's cool. <laughs> and, um, and no one really knew who Bono was and we came, they came in... Really? And, no. <laughs> no, 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 because <laughs> they were a big band. It was before Live Aid, I think. Yes, it was just before Live Aid, because I went to Live Aid. With, so this is my Irish Keith. mate who's turned Yeah, up. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, but Keith didn't know anything. Mick Jagger, Mick Jagger wasn't there at the time. Oh, right. Mick would have known who Bono Mick was. Mick known. Yeah, yeah, exactly. because, you know. But Keith didn't, you know, he lives in Keith's world. It's true. You know, I remember turning Keith onto Robert Cray. And then Keith suddenly, all of a sudden, is like, hey, you know, he, fi- he found someone relatively new to life. <laughs> Contemporary. Contemporary. You know. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, then Bono came in after they recorded on this, and, and Bono started talking, uh, analysing it, and Keith just says, shut up, kid. You know, something like that. You know, because it was very uncool to, to analyse the music back. Oh, sure. You know. It's and, really interesting. Yeah, that yeah. business about having visitors... Do you think that's possibly because they, they found it more comfortable with other oh, people were, other than themselves? Yeah, well, maybe. But there would be headphones lying around the studio in Paris and these girls would come in and put their headphones on and it would sound better in the headphones. So they would start dancing right. and stuff. <laughs> it was very So you just sat there and kind of... Yeah, and, and sort of steered. Yeah. Um, right. But as I say, I was Henry Kissinger with... I'd have Keith coming up going, oh, I'll tell him this. And then Mick going, you go and tell him this. <laughs> oh, God. And you were a lot younger than them. Well, I was, But yes. you weren't intimidated by them? No, no, I wasn't. Um, no, the one time I was intimidated, which was really... was on the Peter Gabriel album when Robert Fripp came in to do some guitar. Now, Robert Fripp had been the producer before, yeah. on the album before. And you know Robert. Robert's like 
I haven't met him, but I understand oh, yeah. he's not the, not easy. He's a he's a big ego, you know. And you know, he says there are certain people, you know, who who hold the room, you know. And he was one of these people, and and he was the producer on the album before, and on my album, it was you know he was coming in to play guitar. At the same time, Kate Bush was out in the studio singing "Je Sans Frontières" on Games Without Frontiers, and and they're sitting at the back, and I'm there, and I'm going, "Yeah, can we do it again, please?" And uh, now we just need you to do it and again, you know. And I'm coaching her through this part, and I hear this voice at the back going, "Well, something like, oh, I'm sure she's done it enough times by now, you know." And I and I'm young, right? I'm 25 years old. And I've got Robert Fripp behind me telling me that it's okay. And I'm going, it's not okay. I just ignored it. And, and that, like, I grew 10 years because I, you know, I was like shaking because it was like, I mustn't lose my nerve. No, I'm sure. But I did. And it was, um, and he has no idea that I was, you know, he was just said what he said. But this was a big thing on my, uh, in my head, you know. This yeah. was, this, I, I went from a boy to a man that day because I, I think, yes. Yes, I can be more confident. Who's now. the most difficult act you've ever produced? Oh God, difficult. I try not to work with difficult people right. because difficult. It's all about relationships. So I like to try and get a good relationship before I go in. Um, I mean, I just recently worked with Jared Leto with right. Thirty Seconds to Mars. He's a wonderful guy, but you know, I mean, crazy, crazy in a in an obsessive sort of a way. He's great though. Um, everything from him though is from here, and from the brain. Well, yeah, from the brain because he's an actor. Yeah, 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 you know. And actors basically, if we were in a movie right now, if this was a movie, someone would would have made a proper decision, you know, a calculated decision to put these glasses here. Yeah, yeah. And that water would be yeah, half very specific. Specific. Everything in a movie is like that. Well, making records isn't like that. But he takes that whole thing. Yeah, he he looks at making records the same as making a movie, and um, so I was, and, and he would sit around playing acoustic guitar and singing just like, and it was and it sounded wonderful, and you know I would really wanted to to, you know I would love to to get that, but I've just remembered someone. Go on, Lee Mathers. Oh right, the Lars. Right, whose album I did, and. Um, he wasn't difficult because he was again a fantastically and is a fantastic talent but just very difficult to to get his confidence you know and they're the only for him to be confident or to well yeah because i always think you know if i take on a on a project it's my fault if it doesn't work that's my job you know i can't ever blame anyone if it doesn't work i mean I would never say, oh, I should have fired the drummer. I, and I would never say, I'll do your record if you fire the drummer. I just wouldn't do the record. Right. Who am I to say you should get, you know, right. some producers love to be able to have, to say, oh, I had to fire the drummer. <laughs> I wouldn't do that. Muff Winwood wanted to sign you too. Said, fire the drummer. And oh, really? Pa- and Paul McGuinness said, but he formed the band. We can't fire him. Right. <laughs> you know. <laughs> it's, it used to happen a lot, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I don't, you know. Right. Right. I, I, I don't have that sort of ego. Yeah. So how has the producer's you know, job changed in the last 10 years? Apart from the fact nobody's buying records. Nobody's buying records. It's gone from that to that. Yes, it's all on the screen. Now. It's all on the screen. Something you look at. Uh, yeah, a lot of people look at music. I've t- 
taken the decision that I am not going to look at music. I am going to still use my ears and employ part of my team to do the looking. So I know what all the looking does, but I am in that unique position where I use my ears still. Right. And, um, and it's a little bit... It's a little bit... Uh, com- um, not annoying, it's a little bit, you know, I wish, sometimes I wish I could do all that, but I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to be in, you know, but there are so many young kids who are so good at it right. that uh, I would rather use more of an overview of, of, you know, and use my experience because I've been doing it for, 30, yeah. you know, yeah. when I started in 40 years ago, the next year would be 40 years. So, um I was talking to a producer not long ago who said that it's very different nowadays because um, record companies want to get more and more involved because they can kind of look at it and they can constantly edit it and they can constantly come in and say, why don't you make that bit a bit louder or move that bit to the front? Yeah, well, everyone's an average, you know. Everyone knows a little bit about it. And uh, I don't know. The trouble with record companies is that the the sort of middle class of record companies, which is the A&R men, they've gone. You know, they have scouts and they have presidents. And really, I mean, there's very few A&R men left. And, you know, when I was running Mercury Records here and I was uh, uh, also, I mean, I could sign things, but I still had to get it signed off by my boss. You know, and now even more so. Yeah. You know, I mean, the amount of major labels that's, you know, there's only like five people in the world who decide on, in the Western world, to decide on what's signed. Uh-huh. You know, if it's, it's the head of Colombia, the head of, you know, in England, there's, you know, it's, uh, you know, so you, the, know you know those people. So there's no, different people there's there. no A&R men kind of saying that song could be better or... or... No, I don't know. I mean, um, there are a few of them, but it's, it's just an evolving thing. As I say, my son manages Ellie Golding and... You know, don't tell him this is not a good time for music. Right. You know, for him, it's like, this is the golden age. You know, he's... he's the, I think one of the, the, the differences now is an artist can, can make up for the shortfall on record sale royalties with some great sponsorship deals. Right. You know, which in, in my day, they were sort of frowned upon. Mm-hmm. You know, but now it, it feels no... It, it doesn't feel uncool at all to take 50 grand from Nike to go and play at their conference or something like that, you know. So good luck to them. So can a producer be as busy now as they used to be? Well, I'm not as busy. I don't... um, I don't want to be as busy. You know, I... I, I, But I've... You know, I'm trying to keep my standards up. I mean, it's sort of laughable, really. I'm 56 years old. And when I started out, the thought of a 30-something producer was really old. Anyone in their forties? No, forget about it. Fifties. You know, and George Martin didn't work for a while, did he? In his right. Family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's got a too old. He's exactly. Retired. Exactly. <laughs> so you know, it's it's. I can't believe I'm even being considered. You know, it's. I hate that horrible thing of you know trying to be hip when you're old, but it's it's. Uh, it's the game. It's the game, right. you know. I read recently you saying that you'd really like to be. You'd like to replace Simon Cowell on America's Got Talent. 
American Idol, I think it was. American Idol. Uh, yes, I, I did run a, a, a relatively public campaign. Yeah. <laughs> um, that seems like... And a... people did say, what the fuck? Why the hell do you want to do that? And I said, well, um, I feel that my personality would have suited it. Right. And... You know, whereas Simon Cowell is a half-empty kind of a guy, I'm a half-full kind of guy. <laughs> so it would have been nice. And I, I'm, I, I'm still not giving up my, my, my entry point into TV in America. And how would you change it if you were... If you American Idol, I would be yeah. more... I, I wouldn't change it. I mean, I couldn't. People don't change it. You'd get employed to be part of it. But I feel my personality is, is conducive to something like that. Right. Especially in America. And what was the thing? What would be the thing you'd most often found yourself saying to young artists? It's a bit pitchy, dog. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, but no, I'm not sure. American Idol is, you know, that's probably the the. I'm not. But in America, it's amazing. There is still there's this show called The Voice, which which got amazing ratings, you know, and um, so there's still an appetite for music on television. Right, and I would love to to be involved somehow in music on television. I don't know how yet, I, but, you know, I'm, I have an agent in New York. Right, right. Yeah, I mean... So don't give up hope. No, I, I want to be a, a household name. On the, right. on the... <laughs> and who, and, and, and finally, who, who do you wish you produced? Oh, well, that question. Uh, well, you know, obviously Springsteen around early days, Bowie again around those days mm -hmm. they were my heroes um and i always thought i always thought the clashes records except for give them enough rope which sounded pretty good were weak sounding for me vocals uh, i think i would have loved to produce the clash and current bands i mean i, I love obviously mumford and sons and uh fleet foxes and you know i think nowadays it's difficult for a two guitars bass and drums yeah, it's like the weakest art form, I think. You've got to have something else. You've got to have great harmonies. You've got to have something. Because indie rock bores me to fuck, you know. It's terrible. <laughs> no, it is. You know, I hate shoegate. Um, oh. You know, be a bit more inventive. <laughs> Steve, thanks very much. Thank it's you, been, It's been a <laughs> If you've been affected by any of the issues in this podcast, go to wordmagazine.co.uk or apply at your newsagent. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. 
And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.